0: Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm, and if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started, because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Susan Piver has written nine books. She's been a New York Times bestselling author. And she's been a meditation teacher in a Buddhist tradition for more than 25 years. She founded and runs the Open Heart Project that has 20,000 meditators from all over the world. And as Susan says, it's not an app. It's a community offered with respect for the mystery and brilliance of each individual. Susan's written several books that are right next to me on my bookshelf, including The Four Noble Truths of Love, How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life, and The Wisdom of a Broken Heart. Susan and I are dear friends and have been for a number of years, but I really appreciate how much I learn from every conversation I have with her, and that's why I ask her to be on the podcast, so she could come and talk about the real nitty-gritty of how she lives her life, how she deals with chronic pain, what her writing process is like and so many other things. So dive in with us. Susan, what motivates you to keep going? You have been doing your work in a lot of different forms, and I want to ask you about that in a second, for a long time. What motivates you to keep teaching, to keep writing? You're working on a new book I can't wait to ask you about. I know the answer to this question, weirdly, even
1: though it has been a long time. And as you know, there's just millions of ups and downs, not just over the years, but over the, the hours of a day. But what keeps me motivated is I seem to look at my work as like an art project. I never really thought about that until a year or two ago. It's, I want to make it. I want to create what I'm creating. And I don't know what that means necessarily from day to day or month to month, but I'm really intrigued by the process. And that's what engages me most. And luckily, like you, I, I think what we're doing is trying to help people. And that's awesome. And I hope that you both will help a lot of people is it okay to say that's not really what what
0: motivates me (laughs) i actually think it's really important really why do you say that because i think people get a sense that their work their creative work has to be only about who they're writing to or teaching to or creating audio for i think that is a real recipe for burnout and over attachment to outcome speaking personally (laughs) right i've never heard of that but yeah no that that makes total sense I think what Susan just said about motivation is brilliant and so important, and really bears true from my experience, but also with my students and clients. Because when we don't have something that's feeding us in our projects, when we're not taking care of ourselves, we're taking care of our clients or our readers or whomever else, or we're putting them always first, I think it's a recipe for burnout. To ask my students to really think about, yeah, why should anyone care? Ask that question in the most gentle, curious way. Think about who you want to serve, but equally important, You have to be asking yourself, why do I care? What's in it for me? And it can be really subtle things like Susan is talking about. Yeah,
1: obviously it is the point is to be helpful. But I realized a couple of years ago, whatever it is I'm doing, I'm not creating it. I don't mean to sound woo-woo because I make all sorts of decisions about what I want to do and 90% of them just don't matter because other things happen. Instead of creating this work, I feel like I'm shepherding it. I want to be a good shepherd.
0: Is it hard for you when the work isn't received the way you want in the world, when it doesn't settle the way you want? I mean, you've had incredible success, but I, you and I are friends and I know you've had disappointments too. So does that impact your motivation? Yeah, it does in
1: both directions, like meaning that when things really succeed, it motivates me and it also scares me and makes me want to stop. And when things tank, it scares me too. But it also sort of motivates me to be like, well, what happened here? And what what else? After, you know, periods of grieving and crying and watching lots of television, like everyone, I have my own neuroses and ways of hiding. And part of my way is I always happen to feel kind of invisible. That's just left over from, you know, many years of whatever childhood thingies. And so when people don't respond to the work, a part of me is like, yeah, that's how it is. Mm. Not good, but I know how to hide. And what are some of the ways that you hide? That sounds a little weird, but I don't expect anyone to pay attention to what I'm saying on some very primal level. Mm. And so on one hand, that makes it easier for me. I'll, I'll just do anything I want because no one's going to no one's gonna notice. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, there's just a lot of pain involved in that. So for the first long time in my life as a writer and a teacher, I always made sure to say, well, this is what I heard. Or I don't know if this is true. Someone taught me this and I'm sharing it with you. And I still say that a lot, but it took me a long time to kind of own what I knew. So I often hid behind other people's knowing. Luckily, I chose really good
0: people to hide behind. <laughs> <laughs> That's. A- I just want to call out two things from that for everybody. It's okay to have to hide in that way. If you pick good people and you do your research and you do your learning, I mean, you've spent a lot of years studying Buddhism, the Enneagram and, you know, other things as well. But those two things I know you've studied really deeply. So I love that. It's almost it's um, training wheels. Yeah, man, that's maybe not the best metaphor, but the but the, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's a lot of right about it. But I also really wonder about that moment. Do you remember the moment when you started to say, This is what I know? I kind of do, actually.
1: I, I was right. This book was, has been out for well, over 13 years, I think. It's called How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life. And it's about the Buddhist path, basically. And I put in a lot of caveats in the manuscript. Well, this is what I heard, but I don't know. And maybe blah, blah, blah. And the editor sent it back to me with all those things crossed off. It's <laughs> like, this is irritating, she actually said. Just if you know it, just say it. And I was like, oh, okay. And, and the Buddhist path, as I've been taught, is dedicated on personal knowing. So And in our, my world, I'm sure your world too, Jen, which a lot of similarities and some differences, there are people who are constantly, you know, aw shucksing, their way and then there are people who are like get out of my way i know everything i'm going to tell you the the nine things you need to do to have everything you want and i would always sort of default to the "oh shucks side of the spectrum because i was scared of becoming the let me tell you what's going on but i i stopped worrying about that some time ago and and a part of the practice of dharma is to inhabit your true knowing so when mm-hmm. I looked at it as a practice, that, that, that gave me courage.
0: Oh, I love that so much. And, and I, I just think for everybody listening, it doesn't have to be a Buddhist practice, right? It's a creativity practice. It's a self-trust practice. Let me just jump in here for a second. If you're listening to Susan and going, wow, I have that all shucks thing about my work or, oh, I want that return to a deep creativity practice or anything that Susan is saying resonates with you, may I suggest one of my truly transformational writing retreats they are they're magical <laughs> they've been built over many many decades to include so many elements that work together to help you find that voice find that self-trust find that confidence in your writing whether you're just starting a project or you're trying to get unstuck all levels of writers all genres And they're deeply spiritual, they're deep self-care, and you get a lot of writing done. And they're a fantastic place to leave behind aweshocks and really claim what only you can say. Find out more at jenniferloudon.com and just click on retreats. Oh, that just landed in my heart really hard. In a good way. (laughs) (laughs) Not in a bad way. Well, you know, I, I struggle a lot with the same issues and not wanting to be a fake, not wanting to hurt anyone, not wanting to claim anything that's not true. Your truth evolves, what you learn evolves. And if you're out there as long as we've been out there, you say things at later, or you write things, or there are things in your books that you go, oh, I don't know about that anymore. Mm-hmm. Or I would say that differently now. So I, I just love the way you said that. It really gives me um, th- food for thought. That's great. What do you struggle with when it comes to being consistent and productive with your work? I struggle with
1: two things immediately jumped to mind. One is pain. I struggle with chronic pain. I have chronic migraines. I was in a bad accident a long time ago. There's all these residual aches and pains. And that is horrible. There's no way around it. it I don't know how I'm going to feel from day to day. I'm having a great day to today and a really great week. So yay. But I don't know when it's, it's going to drop in and just I can well, can't do anything. That that really upsets me. And then I lose confidence in myself. I lose confidence. And in the echo chamber of Zoom, which has been my life for like the last six years, because I, I on my work has been online for on Zoom for six years. That's basically the main way I work. And the echo chamber has its pluses, as you say. It's your home. You just click quit, quit and you're, on, you're off stage. <laughs> but there's also nothing to react to you. It's very vacuous. And so I. that's a great way for me to just pour my neurotic fears. There's nothing to counteract them. So I just try to be patient with myself. Can I ask you that same question?
0: Uh, you don't have to feel answer. Like, you no, know, I just, I feel like productivity is too easy for me. Like I'm addicted to it. I'm addicted to getting things done. I don't mean addicted. In a, I, I don't mean to misuse that word, everybody. I don't mean addicted like, I can't stop. I can't take vacations, things like that, or that it completely defines me, but I'd rather be working than a lot of other things. And so that's actually not always a good thing because it can add, it can lead to that sort of flatness that you're talking about, I think, from not being in, in the room with people and not teaching in person. And uh, You are massively productive. You yeah. are incredibly productive and it's great.
1: And it's I great get that there's it, a
0: downside too. Right. I think at the end, i middle road that we're looking for. Right. Right. Yeah. Can we talk about your chronic pain? Can we talk about what are some of the ways that you work around it or how do you relax with it? Because I'm sure (laughs) you can't see your face, everybody, but you just made a funny face. (laughs) You know, I'm sure a lot of people listening have chronic pain. It's, Mm -hmm. It's a big part of people's lives. Yeah.
1: Well, there's no way to really work with it. It just hurts. And then I don't know. If it's chronic neck pain and then chronic migraines. So I'm always trying things. I'm always trying this trigger point injections or peppermint oil, which I hate, or (laughs) CBD oil, which is good, (laughs) or just trying and going to sleep. Sometimes that that works. I've had surgery. I've done every body work there is. I went on the ketogenic diet in September. That's been, been very uniform for me since then. That's been quite helpful. So I'm always trying things, but it just presents giant obstacles. There's no no way about it, around it. And yes, I'm a meditation teacher, and it doesn't matter that I'm a meditation teacher. I know there are a lot of studies that say meditation can help with pain, and good, but it doesn't help me with pain. It's so, it's like, but it does help with present awareness, because when you're in pain, and not saying this is good, but you really can't be aware of anything else, it doesn't Oh, let me just put that pain in the background. I, I can't do that. So it's a stupid. Just hate. No, <laughs> but it's real. And, and I was in a bad wreck, as I mentioned a long time ago. And that changed my life. That, that accident changed my life. And it still reverberates decades later. And it's been a central occurrence in my life as an adult. And yeah, so I still reckon with that, that moment. How do you reckon with it? Well, I feel it in my body because I was hit by a drunk driver. So I was just, I don't remember it, by the way, but I read the police report. And so I had a lot of internal damage. And so it changed my rib cage. And so every breath I take, I feel my diaphragm does not quite inflate on on one side. And so... Even though it's been a long time, I, I still notice it's it literally it's a literal manifestation. It's with every breath and scars and pain and all of those things. And I don't know what it means. You know, I know there are people who are like, well, I was in, a, I almost died, which I'm very lucky to be alive. Nobody expected me to live, and I turned my life around. That that was not my experience, but yeah, it was pivotal. pivotal.
0: You have been a meditator for twenty years now. 27 actually. 27, I dropped seven years there. Do you meditate every day? No, but pretty much. And is there guilt as a meditation teacher if you don't meditate every day? Yeah,
1: because I don't want to be, I don't want to be a bullshitter. (laughs) (laughs) So I, and I teach meditation. So I often, meditating is part of my day Mm -hmm. as in my work, but that doesn't, take the place of my own personal practice. So yeah, I do feel bad when I don't meditate. And there's also times when I really don't meditate, like weeks, months over the 27 years. And yeah, I don't like that. I don't feel good about that. But I also am a human being. And when students say to me, oh, I just stopped meditating or I know I should, I, I have obviously a lot more insight into what that feels like. And if I was, you know, a perfect meditation robot, then I would be missing that passion.
0: And what do you, I, you've given me advice when I've stopped meditating. Well, what is some of the advice you give your students when they're struggling? I'll say make not
1: meditating your practice for a week or a month or whatever you decide. And just say that my practice is I am not going to practice. And then just notice what that's like. If you feel guilty, notice that, and let it go. If you feel relieved, notice that and let it go and then at the end of the period, seven days, thirty days, whatever you decide, reassess you don't have to go back to meditating. You can prolong that, but make it a practice by being aware of what it feels like to not practice, not as a way of getting yourself to practice because mm-hmm. that's then your that's a, a move of self aggression but of being curious about it. Take it off the plate, just take it off the list and enjoy that. And then see what happens when you want to come back.
0: Yeah. I've given that same advice for people with their writing, you know, when they want to write something and they're not writing. Mm -hmm. There's something so essential to what you just said in the process of living and creating. And it's so subtle in a way, because what we do when we take it off the plate is we usually just keep beating ourselves up for taking it off the plate. And we keep, or it's even more subtle than that. We keep thinking, well, when this is over or I'm going to figure it out because I'm doing this and then I'm going to figure it out and then it'll be different and then I'll be better. Yeah, exactly. Like agenda,
1: agenda, agenda or my (laughs) agendalessness. Yeah. Yeah. So I I am yeah, me too. I'm like, well, I'm going to get somewhere by doing this, not getting anywhere practice. But so that's cool. And what I was saying about compassion is actually the main point, because I remember I was talking to a great meditation master, an actual meditation master named Tulku Tundup Rinpoche, who was a truly astonishing teacher who's been kind enough to give me teachings over the years. And I remember once I was talking about some problem I was having, I don't remember what it was, but it was very important. And that I thought he would give me some Dharma teaching about how to make that problem go away. But instead he said, well, just imagine how much compassion you'll have or anyone you meet in the future who is struggling with this problem. So when you struggle with self-shame and just beating yourself up, it doesn't help to go stop that. Then you get upset because you can't stop it. And so it just compounds and compounds. So you can't beat yourself up to be peaceful and just will never work. So instead, what I tell myself and suggest to others is you could turn toward this impulse to shame yourself and investigate it. Like, what does it feel like? Where does it live in my body? Not what are my stories about it, but what does it feel like?
0: You yeah, know, direct experience of it. Direct experience,
1: exactly. And then when I talk to a friend or a colleague or a child or anyone in the future who does this, I will have something in my belt. I will have something in my back that could help them because I will have such a personal understanding of it. So recognize it as a bridge to others that could really be useful in the future. So it's not pointless and it doesn't respond to aggression.
0: All right. I agree. I love that. We've talked about how you write. You've written eight books now? Sort of, yeah. Sort of, right? The, <laughs> including the book packaging that you did? Yeah. Well, yeah. Four. Yeah. Okay. I say sort of too. So i like, oh, a couple of those books that really have some blank space in them. You like this. I didn't write them. They're designy. But right, no, they're I, designy. I've actually written nine. I actually wrote that myself with my name on the spine. Okay. And you're working on a new book. Do you want to talk about it? Yes. I want to talk about, like, to me, well, you you tell us about it, and then I have some questions about it.
1: Okay. Well, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a student of the Enneagram and a student of Buddhism. And over the years, I have never found a more interesting combination of teachings. So I want to write, the book I'm writing is tentatively called The Buddhist Enneagram, which is a way of looking at the vast teaching of the Enneagram through the vast
0: lens of the Buddha Dharma. So I'm very excited about it. and it's Well, so take us into that process because that sounds like a ton of research. Mm -mm, No research. No research. I'm not a researchy person. But yeah, this has been a hard
1: one. As I'm sure you know, every book is like different. The process is different. And sometimes, by my last book, The Four Noble Truths of Love, I'm not saying it was easy. It was not easy. It's never easy. But it was writing from talks I'd given over the years. So I didn't transcribe talks and say, here's a book, but I knew the words. I basically knew what I wanted to say and then tried to say it. This book is not that way because I don't really teach this and I'm discovering the material as I'm writing it. So I've been trying to write it for over a year and a half and I
0: really haven't gotten anywhere until the last month. And why? I don't know. Well, what does it look like? Are you sitting there writing and then tearing it up or deleting it? Are you reading books and then coming and thinking about it? Like
1: for me, the writing, that part of the writing process has always been the same, which is I just show up always in the morning and I'm like, what am I thinking about? Okay, let me write that down and let me see if it goes somewhere.
0: So Susan asks herself, what am I thinking about? Do you feel that relationship and that honoring of your own thoughts? and how you might bring that into your own creative process. Sometimes my default is to think about, oh my God, what do my people need? Or I got to get this off my list today. It can be really reactive and outward directed. I love this. What am I thinking about? I don't have an outline. I don't have a,
1: you know, the Enneagram is a very specific form. So the one, two, three of it is clear, up to nine is clear. But I just wait I sit there and wait, and I just start noodling And Oh, it seems that the virtue of eight is called innocence. Well, in Buddhism, that could be called prajna or wisdom. So that's interesting to me. Well, what does that mean? Uh, I think it could mean this or that. I just start writing it as like I'm talking to myself. And then I feel happy if I write a thousand words. I'm not prolific. And I think a thousand
0: words a day is prolific, just FYI.
1: Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> that's good to know. I'm happy, super happy if I get a thousand words. And then I come back the next day, usually, and what am I thinking about this morning? And then I just make a separate word file or whatever program I'm using for each of those little essays until I feel like, oh, maybe they would connect to each other. They may not. Then I dump them all in one word document, in one document without just chronologically, and then try to see just is there something here? Is there something here? And sometimes there is, and sometimes there isn't, or sometimes I think there is, but there isn't, and vice versa. But I try to see: is it taking shape, or do I need to go back to this? Let me write, keep writing little pieces, write little pieces, and then drop them in. And that's how I've always done it: is just show up, write what comes to me, and then assess. At some point, if assess too early, then you get very depressed. Oh, there's nothing here. If you assess too late, then you post yourself off in a little corner, you, you, there's no more oxygen. So it's kind of a kind of delicate, but it's not that delicate. And for the Enneagram book, that didn't work. Mm-hmm. I literally tried for a year and then I didn't throw anything away. I just put it in a folder called Enneagram on my Google Drive. And like, well, someday maybe it'll make sense. Someday maybe it'll make sense. I even went away to Joshua Tree last year around this time for a week to just shut everything out. And give myself to this. Like I brought pictures of Enneagram idols and candles and comfy clothes. And I don't know what, lots of snacks. And then Palookaville, nothing. Nothing. It's horrible. <laughs> Palookaville. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, just obvious, nothing. And then I gave up for a few months. I just, I, I keep thinking about it. I keep thinking about it. I keep it keeps reverberating. And then for whatever reason, a little less than a month ago, I saw how to get in. And
0: tell me about that moment. How did you see to get in?
1: I saw that I wasn't writing a book about the Enneagram. I was writing a book about Buddhism that used the Enneagram as a prism. And so, because there are a lot of books about the Enneagram. What can I say that will add to the conversation? And this is what I can say that will add to the conversation. So a little example is, this is actually the moment it all turned around. The Enneagram, as probably many people know, is comprised of nine types of people, nine types, ways of being is a better way of saying it. And they're divided into three groups of three by what the Enneagram calls centers of intelligence, mental intelligence, intuitive intelligence, and emotional intelligence, three numbers in each of those groups. And one day I was noodling around with this. I'm like, oh yeah, in Buddhism, the awakened mind is said to have three qualities. It is wise, it is compassionate, and it is powerful, confident. So I'm like, oh yeah, Wise, that matches the mental triad. Compassionate, that matches, matches the emotional triad. Powerful, that references the intuitive triad, because those are people that run on gut instinct, like sensorial inputs. So, oh, wow. So then the three bodhisattvas associated with, with each of those qualities, Manjushri, Avalokiteshvara, Vajrapani, I know something about them, not, not a whole lot, but something. So, Then I started to get really interested and excited, like how could Vajrapani govern the intuitive triad? What would that mean? I don't know if anyone ever talked about that. That's exciting to me. And I don't know if it is true. I think it is. But then the writing became a discovery process that I find personally very interesting to me. And hopefully it will be interesting to someone else too.
0: I feel like Susan just gave us a map to her creative process, not the creative process, because everybody's map is different. I heard her say things like, respond, listen, be curious, waiting. If you stepped back right now and wrote down your words or phrases for the parts of the creative process that you know and love, your process, what might they be? Yeah, I'm really struck by how intuitive of a writer you are. Yeah. Are you? No. How do you do it? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I really think a lot about what is the point of this and why should anybody care before Mm -hmm. I start writing? Because I spent years writing books from that place Mm -hmm. that didn't work. So I've gotten... What way? Didn't work for the reader. Like, didn't... I see or something, someone wouldn't want to read, (laughs) or or ideas that fell apart for me. I I know you've had this experience too. And I'm sure everybody listening, you you get an idea and you're like, oh yeah, wow, amazing. And then you start working on it maybe a week, maybe seven months later. And you're like, no, Mm. this, this isn't working. This isn't working for me. There's not, what you just described so beautifully is true for me, however, which is that I'm interested in this. And I think that goes back to the beginning of our conversation is we have to be motivated by what we're creating. 100%.
1: I was thinking the same thing. It goes back to the very first part of the conversation was what keeps you motivated? Mm -hmm. It's like an art project that I'm making. And today I'm going to work on this piece. And then tomorrow I'm going to try to change that color. And that's enjoyable. And some days it really doesn't work. And then some days it does. But It's the journey to me, not to be right, but it's the journey that's interesting. Yeah,
0: there's an element of devotion and desire and curiosity and wonder, and I think that has to be there. That's why bother.
1: Mm -hmm. That's why bother, I think, is because it's interesting. It means something to you or to me, and then it's natural. You want to bother because
0: you love it. You care about it, even though it bites back sometimes. But I think that also comes to a fundamental conversation about being a creator. You have to decide that that matters to you because no one else, I don't care if you have a contract with a big publisher, I don't care what who's waiting for you, your screenwriting agent, all those experiences that we've had. If you don't give yourself the agency to create and to follow those whispers, nothing happens. Agreed. Agreed.
1: Nothing happens. So I'm sure I've told you this. I was a terrible student. I barely graduated high school. I didn't go to college. I didn't comport with any of that. And I'm not saying that as a point of pride or a point of shame at this point. But I started getting used to being my own companion. because I couldn't figure out how to say to anyone what I was thinking about. And there was no opening for me to share what I was thinking about. So that is part of the hiding also that we were talking about earlier. But it gave me this uh, unforeseen boost, which is, I don't think anyone's going to listen to me. So I might as well just enjoy my own company. <laughs> which I love I that.
0: I, I like my own company at, at, to a fault. Well, actually, I wanted to ask you about that. You were really good at, from my eyes over here, at creating the space that you need. When you took the studio so you could have your own space to just be alone, do your work, think. When you and I have traveled together, you're like, I'm out. You know, there's just, it it always has felt like you're so clear about your needs for space. So many women struggle with that. I mean, it is such an essential struggle that I've heard about for 30 years. Where does that come from? Is that from hiding and not comporting in the normal world? Or is it something you had to learn to do? That's interesting. I never thought about
1: that. Part of it is hiding. Part of it is literally physical like a a switch flips off Mm -hmm. i don't have anything else like i don't i'm exhausted i got got a face plant i I got nothing so that's part of it and probably another part is just getting older and not not worrying that much and then the final part of it is PTSD related it's just my nervous system gets riled up and Mm -hmm. it's not like i can put that aside So mostly though, it's getting older and not caring as much.
0: (laughs) I would say it's just I got to do this, y'all. Please still love me. I still love you. Yeah, I love that. Couple more questions. You have said that you've had at least three careers. Mm -hmm. You know, music producer. You don't call it uh, music executive in Austin. Mm -hmm. Self help writer. with the hard questions that's being re-released this year, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a Buddhist meditation teacher. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I hear from students that changing and growing in their work, their creative work feels not okay. Mm -hmm. It feels really scary. Like there's supposed to be one thing and that's all they ever talk about and create about, but you've been really clear and it just feels so forgiving and curious about the way you've evolved. Oh, that's sweet. I'm glad it looks that way. <laughs> <laughs> Some people are
1: really good at saying, here's my five-year plan or my 10-year plan, and here's the 18 steps I need to take to get there, and then they just knock those steps out. And I wish I was one of those people, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. I can make all the plans I want, and they just they just blow up in my face. So I just learned that early on, that I have to respond. It works better for me to respond to my world. Mm-hmm. To something to my world and there have been many times and countless you know if you read any books that tell you how to make your career or your life they're like you have to envision it and you have to have lists and I oh yeah okay good but not me i can envision all i want it doesn't it doesn't change things but if i respond to my world oh look this showed up or oh, look i'm thinking about that 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 is what the little stones across the river sort of appear in that way. I don't know where the next stone is. And so there's a lot of waiting, a lot of waiting. But I'm a, we're Sagittarians, but I'm also a double Pisces, Pisces moon, Pisces rising. So there's a lot of swimming through, you know, whatever, you know, just swim through, see what happens. My way is not a good way or a bad way.
0: Right. It just is my way. No, and I, I think, think that's the
1: key. It's yeah.
0: Way. I love that. And it really speaks to why I'm doing this show because I think it, when we can have other people's stories, it helps reflect back to us, what is my way? So nobody listening, do I want you to think Susan Piper has the way? I do not. Right. Not, nobody else has the way, but there's these mirrors and these examples that we can use to f- see our own way more clearly. Your life is telling a story. Oh, did that give you chills like it did me or oof, like right down into your gut? Does it make you want to approach your creative work, your ambitions, your desires differently? What is the story that you could be listening for? And it can be really nitty gritty, the story of your creative process. And it can also, I think, be really vast. Like, what is the story that I may never complete or understand? It may be a mystery in many ways that I'm participating in. The sense of a larger story unfolding where does that lead you to take action? How does it intrigue you? How does it tickle your curiosity? We all try to author. This is going to sound very,
1: may sound very trite, but we all try to author our lives. But your life is authoring you. that That's mm. how I feel. Mm. Your life is telling a story. What is it? You're not the author of it. You're not not the author, but it, your life is telling a story. What is that story? To me, that's a more interesting question than, you know, what am I supposed to do? Or, or who am I?
0: Hmm. No, I've made my, made my whole body go hmm, like <laughs> in a good way. Okay. Two more questions. Mm-hmm. One is, have you ever fallen into why bother around your work? Yes. Right. Not for a while, but as you mentioned, my first
1: book, the hard questions it blew up out of nowhere, not being humble. Yeah. No. It was a huge, it was a huge deal. It was a huge deal and nobody, uh, I don't know. I still don't know. And then suddenly I had all this, I say shit, all this stuff being thrown at me that was really exciting, money and contracts and oh wow, this is amazing. And then it just really didn't work out. Didn't work out in such a crushing way. The next books I wrote were terrible and nobody liked them and the publisher didn't like me and It was bone crushing. And I'm like, I'll never write another word again. I really felt that way. And I'm like, okay, I guess I better go back to being a book packager. Oh, the music business is gone. So I'm not going back to that. (laughs) (laughs) But okay, that was a weird blip. That still affects me. That still affects me, that experience, that publishing experience. It was so dramatic, dramatic success and then dramatic kick to the gut. It was best and worst thing that ever happened to me. And I still it still is very much on is part of me. I'll never get over it, I don't think. But I've moved on at the same time. So yeah, that was bad. But I have the luck, the good fortune to be a Buddhist practitioner who has made vows, refuge vows, bodhisattva vows, vows to do certain practices. And I don't want to be a liar. And I also know from countless experiences that prove it, that the Buddha Dharma, for me, is so far beyond whatever I could have imagined it was. So powerful, so real, not dependent on Susie Piver and what she thinks and and what she believes, quote, or doesn't believe. That is something to bother about. That is something to bother about. When you find a source of wisdom that is vast and intimate at the same time, then at least so far, that is always my answer to why bother.
0: Vows can help us bother when we lose our way, when our work goes stale, or when really hard things happen. Vows, it's its a serious word, isn't it? But it really resonates with me. Vows, what are the vows that you've taken? Have you taken vows to your craft, to people, to a spiritual path like Susan? What vows would you like to take? What vows can you take refuge and solace in that will help you bother. And for those of you who are new to my work, the name of my book is Why Bother? Discover the Desire for What's Next. And it's about how we care again. It's about how we care again when something has died or been taken from us. Is there something you've learned about being a creative and a woman that you try to remember and refer back to? Mm.
1: The thing I keep telling myself is Whatever it is that I'm making, even if I'm writing about my own marriage, you know, really personal things, it actually has nothing to do with me. And it could not happen without me. There's some really interesting vortex, and I'm sure you find this too when you write. You go back and you read it, like, you're like, who said that? But there's some sense of what I'm trying to put forward really doesn't have anything to do do with me. And it could not happen without me at the same time. So it's at once incredibly intimate and super vast, just to go back to that again.
0: Do you, do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. I'm going to reflect on it, though. I think it's very powerful. It feels like a real door. You've used the word opening a number of times. It feels like a real opening to creativity for, for me to reflect on. All right, I lied. That's not the last question. What are you going to learn next? <laughs> what am I going to learn next? <laughs> I
1: right. sound really mundane, but I'd like to learn how to create. That sounds stupid. Uh, I'd like to learn, but it isn't how to create a better sense of my own business. I'd, I'd like to learn more about, I mean, I, I know about numbers. I look at the numbers all the time, not saying, not a oh, what's a spreadsheet or anything like that? But I would like to have more savvy in the realm of, uh, the, in the financial realm as it affects my business.
0: Oh, that's great. No, it's not dumb at all. That's, that's very smart and very important. Well, as always, time with you is magical and enlightening. And uh, I learned and grew tremendously through this conversation. So thanks for giving us your time. And thanks for being Susie Pettver. I love you, Jen Loudon. Thank you for existing. I love you too. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I feel so nourished and a lot to think about. I hope you'll reflect and take away what will help you create out loud. Oh, hey, and don't let me forget, Susan Piper just has a new book out that is her first book. What? What does that mean? So her very first book was called The Hard Questions. And they're wonderful questions to ask if you're thinking about getting married Moving forward in a committed partnership or renewing your vows or your commitment in a decades old relationship. She has revised the book with more inclusive language and social media questions and all kinds of things that have come up since she wrote the original. So that's just out right now. It makes a fantastic gift. The Hard Questions, wherever books are sold. So check that out. And next week's guest is Maggie Shipstead. You probably have already heard so much about her newest novel, Great Circle. It's on everybody's best of list so far for this year. It's more, of course, been New York Times bestseller, like her previous two novels. And Maggie, oh, I just love this conversation with her. I know I say that every week, but, you know, I try to have people on that I'm really interested in and that I think are going to bring you a lot of value. And Maggie's another one we talk about organizing this sprawling book that took her seven years to write we talk about money we talk about the first date she went on that turned into a six-week polar exploration (laughs) it's really really a fun interesting conversation that'll be next week so stay tuned for that And hey, I wanted to tell you, because I always forget, that if you want show notes and links to the books and websites and things that people are up to, you can always go over to JenniferLouding.com. And right when you get there, you'll see at the top in the menu bar, podcast. Click there and then go to whatever shows you want. You can find links to the people's work. You'll find some excerpts written out, like actual transcripts, not the whole show, but little highlights if you want to read those, some of my own thoughts. And it's a great way to share the show. With other people. You can share some of your favorite episodes on social media super easy, and that helps us grow. And I really, really appreciate that. I love this show. I'm dedicated to it, and I would love for it to find everybody that can help. Okay, we'll be back next week with Create Out Loud and Maggie Shipstead. Thank you.